Robert Anton Wilson <laughs> coined the term chapel perilous. <laughs> this is when something happens in your life and it all begins to fit together and make sense. Too much sense. Because it's coming from the exterior and it seems to either mean that you're losing your mind or you are somehow the central focus of a universal conspiracy that is leading you towards some unimaginable breakthrough. Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join us as we explore the world of iconic writer Robert Anton Wilson, those who influenced him, and those who have been influenced by him. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. In our last episode, we concluded our eight-part Cosmic Trigger series on the major influences of Robert Anton Wilson. With this episode, we change gears and chat with underground filmmaker, paratheater ritualist, professional astrologer, teacher, writer, forest walker, dreamer, and no-form engineer, Antro Ali, on Chapel Perilous, paratheater technology, and the Eight Circuit model. The original idea behind this interview was to produce a multi-guest mega-episode on Chapel Perilous as part of our Cosmic Trigger series. But in the end, it made more sense to release those interviews on their own as separate episodes. Towards the end of this interview, Antro asked me about my work on the Eighth Circuit model. I'll save the details for the interview, but since he and I spoke, I've slowly started a YouTube playlist on my current take of the Eighth Circuit model from a relational framework. You can find a link to that playlist in the show notes. The first two episodes serve more as warm-ups for me while I start dipping into things with a high-level overview for episode three. And with all that said, I'm excited to introduce our guest for the episode, no formologist, Antro Ali. Antro Ali, welcome to the Laritas podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. First things first, did I pronounce your name correctly? Well, the last name is actually pronounced Ali. When you pronounce it Ali, it's uh, the Arabic pronunciation. Last name is A-L-L-I. Ali would be just one L, Ali. So it's Ali. Ali. Kind of like, like Stan and Ali. Yeah, I think of Vali, Ali. Yeah. Okay. And Antero. Antero is ex- exactly right. Excellent. And you are Mike My Gathers. name is Mike Gathers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, Antro, I know you as someone who has expressed a commitment to living without a self-image, and I find myself hesitant to introduce you. I'm willing to take a crack at it, but I'm wondering, would you, could you introduce yourself? Oh, um, gosh. Uh, well, you know, this, this thing about living without a self-image, that's just a, kind of a subjective experience of mine of not being able to let's say, cling to any set idea of who I am. In fact, I very rarely think 
about myself. I'm, I'm, I guess, more busy just kind of living my life to uh, think too much about myself. For those who have not read my books or seen my films or heard about me, the 99% of the population out there, my name is Antero, and I was born in uh, Helsinki, Finland, uh, about 69 years ago. And I have somehow managed to survive by hook and crook all these years without a day job. I've been um, uh, drifting uh, in a parallel dimension outside of the nine to five punch clock uh, timeline uh, that many other people are locked into for reasons of their own. And I have, let's say, really early on, probably in my early 20s, decided that time was the currency, the true currency of my life, and that the time of my life was more important than money, and I just had to make enough money to get by so I could have all the time I need to do the things that I'm here to do, which is basically what has happened. And here I am. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you're here with us. We wanted to talk today about Chapel Perilous. So maybe to cut right to the chase, how might you define Chapel Perilous? Okay, so I'm waiting for the spooky music um, at this time, if there's any kind of cue for music. <laughs> so Chapel Perilous, how to define it? The way I first heard about it uh, was th through reading Bob Wilson's um, Cosmic Trigger. And having also had the um, privilege of meeting Bob and hanging out with Bob in the late 70s and early 80s back in Berkeley, California, I had the um, chance to ask him where he discovered the term Chapel Perilous, because it was really intriguing the way he had written about it in his book. And he, he said, you know, from what he's gathered, it's a, a term that um, he discovered in studying some of the um, old English tales around King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. That the story there was that uh, King Arthur put to task uh, anybody that wanted to serve his kingdom and become one of the knights of the round table, had to spend a night in Chapel Perilous. And Chapel Perilous was supposedly a place where the knight would be exposed to his greatest fears. And King Arthur basically would say, well, if you can come out of the chapel with your sanity and your heart intact, you can sit at my table. And so Chapel Perilous, I guess, from there, I think Bob... And I think I would agree with this, too, in my own kind of way of seeing it. It represents an episode in one's life, and it could be a series of episodes in one's life, where one um, is in some ways forced to face one's deepest fears and to somehow live through those fears and come out on the other side without completely losing your mind and to come out, in a sense, wiser for it. And so my own experience of Chapel Perilous happened, um, well, there's been several um, visits into the chapel over the years, but initially early on, way back in my uh, 20s, I fell through the trap door uh, during what I would call a um, nonstop catastrophic romance um, with a much younger woman at the time. I thought I was losing my mind uh, in terms of all the projections of the psychic projections of the anima and so forth. And um, I was um, grateful to have also been meeting with Bob at that time 
and looking to his metaphor of the chapel perilous as a way to live through my experience. And the way I do it, the way I have done it in my life, I'm I'm kind of a kind of hardcore artist type. And what that means is that I I tend to work through my traumas uh, through my art. And for me, art at that time meant creating theater. So I basically at that time wrote a a two-act play called Chapel Perilous. And I played, um, I performed in the play itself, and I was able to, through that process, use the play as a kind of uh, ritual for exorcising myself out out of the chapel at that time. And I was able to move on from the experience and continue on with my life, um, you know, you know, beyond the uh, the catastrophic romance. I was able to move on. So I think I'm going to stop right there for now. I I, I could just yeah. go on and on. I'm curious. Was that the first point where you used theater as sort of a personal or spiritual tool for evolution and development? Well. I don't know if I've ever used theater or any art as a tool for personal development or evolution, because I don't know if those things actually exist. Fair um, enough. What, what, what I have used them mostly for is to uh, help me integrate and process um, and kind of stomach, learn to stomach some of the more difficult experiences that have been thrown my way. And to basically transform them into something beautiful, something creative or productive, and then share that with the world. And this is part of, I think, the artist temperament and anybody that does this kind of thing. And that started early on with me, you know, okay. in, in my teenage years before I was doing theater. You know, I had some pretty dark points, as a lot of teenagers do. And I um, worked through those by... Um, uh, hand drawing a series of uh, cartoon panels inspired by uh, the great Robert Crumb Zap comic books. Excellent. So, would it be proper to say you've used art as a way to work through experience? Yes, especially experience of a traumatic nature, experiences that have come to me as a shock, where my idea of myself, my world was shattered and broken into pieces, and it's like a got all these pieces of myself and then how do I rearrange these pieces through a process almost like self-reinvention and so my artistic trajectory has pretty much been a a series of self-reinventions over the years. I gotcha. Would you use the word integration? Oh yeah yeah integration is kind of a big deal. What I mean by to integrate something is very simple but not easy and which is which is to say to integrate something means to actually experience something if i can genuinely experience something and pass through the heart of the experience it will tend to become integrated ah the only way out is through that's how i've experienced it yes all right well just to reset a little what i heard is chapel perilous is a is a place where we face one's deepest fears And I'm wondering, it seems to me like we're on the brink of some sort of global chapel perilous. Does that resonate with you? Um, I'd say we're well past the brink. Ah. We're, you know, slam dunked in it. (laughs) Swimming. Swimming and drowning, gasping and groaning, moaning. I mean, you know, it all depends on how each of us manages to um, navigate the escalating uncertainty of the times, you know, 
many people don't know how to manage their anxiety during this time. And so there's the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is getting a lot of money right now for a number of different reasons. Um, I won't, I don't want to go into it right now, but learning to manage your anxiety during this time, I think is a really great idea. Well, you have a, a new book out, State of Emergence, Experiments and Group Ritual Dynamics. If I understand it correctly, this is uh, a paratheater techniques that you feel can help us through this. Helps some of us. Um, I Fair. say that because it's, 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 uh, the book is a distillation of about 40 years of experience in a somatic discipline. It's a discipline that combines methods from uh, physical theater, dance, some yoga, and uh, zazen meditation, but standing zazen, not sitting uh, zazen. And it's a very physically vigorous and emotionally demanding uh, discipline, which is why I, I say it's not for everybody. It, it's, it's for those individuals that can muster up the commitment to basically do this work. And yeah, this is something that's been uh, if I'm going to say, okay, what's my life's work? So this this would be a book that encapsulates my life's work. Nice. Wow, I'm just taking that in. That's a big statement there. And as I understand it, you've retired from paratheater. I was surprised to hear that. Well, I don't know if retired is the right word because I've um, been subjecting myself to this work, meaning I've actually done this work for 40 years. And so there's no retiring from it. It lives on in me every day, every moment. I have stopped uh, facilitating this work for groups. Gotcha. It seems to me this paratheater work, it has what I, my motif of, I think of as the hero's journey, which is maybe ties back to this Knights of the Round Table story about deliberately entering Chapel Perilous, navigating those waters and coming through on the other side, richer for it, and then sharing those, those gifts with the uh, community. Well, I think pretty much so. I mean, I haven't worked a nine to five job, places me in a, an experience of time itself and an experience of uh, continuity of consciousness that has pretty much catapulted me out to the fringes of society as we know it. And so and from those fringes, from those outer kind of limits, I've developed a certain perspective. I can see things. And yet it's not enough for me to see things or to have a perspective, at least for me, if I'm not able to bring it back, bring that vision back somehow and share it with people. So I'm not just, you know, like uh, some kind of, um, you know, freakish monk, you know, trapped in a cave, um, mm. focusing on the crystals or whatever. So this is part of why I write books, part of why I, I make films. These are ways in which I reach individuals, reach people. And this is a pretty important part of my journey because as an individual, I'm not really social. I'm not antisocial. I'm asocial. That would be a, a, an apt label for me. And I say that because I don't really hang out. I don't go to pubs. I don't go to parties. I don't, you know, I don't hang out with people. My primary experience with other people has always been in conjunction with artistic projects, working and rehearsing and producing plays, theater, uh, film, teaching various topics based in my books and so forth. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a kind of singular life in that way, but it's not been a what you might call a social life or, 
you know, I sacrificed basically, I sacrificed my social life for these other kinds of experiences. And it sounds like sharing your art helps you stay connected to the community. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it helps me stay connected to the local community where I screen my films, but also the non-local community, you know, through my books and through um, YouTube and Vimeo, where all my films are actually now available for free viewing. Yes, we'll include a link to those in the show notes for sure. You mentioned asocial, and I know there's an asocial contract that seems like a, a big part, like a foundational to the paratheater work. It is. It is. Uh, we've simply found that the um, uh, the work becomes more effective in in an asocial climate, and what that means is is that you know the uh, the usual reasons for a group to meet, which is to say, you know, social reasons like uh, meeting the need for community, meeting the need for support, uh, meeting the need for courtship, for approval for love, affection from other people. So these were all important social needs. But in this particular work, those needs actually get in the way of the primary objective of the work, which is is basically gaining a a, a more profound access to the internal landscape of the soul. And through that, you know, source point, finding connection with archetypal patterns and Discovering actually new ways of interacting with others uh, that bypass social conventions or social expectations. And the asocial climate is actually, um, it can be created, it can be kind of set up. And it's set up in several ways. One of them is that everyone in the group simply agrees to become responsible for their own safety so that in the in the face of any kind of weirdness or perceived threat or some big energy or so that they become accountable or do their best to make themselves safe in the room so they're not calling mom or dad over to them they're not calling me as the facilitator over to them to make them safe so when everyone becomes accountable for their own safety already we're starting to a kind of a grown-up group is starting to form of adults, not not just children seeking parental guidance and support and love and so forth. And then there's uh, a certain relationship with the space itself as a value. And what, what that means is that there's a certain method we call space forming, where we find a way to move in the room as a group without relating to anybody else, but relating to the space itself as a value, space itself as intelligence, space itself as sacred. And so the space then becomes alive with a certain presence that that we imbue it with as we move through that space. The the other thing too is, is that to sustain that sense of the asocial, people who are involved in this kind of group dynamic, uh, they do best by meeting their social needs outside of the group. So they don't look to the group to meet those social needs. So it's, it's socially austere is what it is. And anybody that approaches the group process to meet their social needs will simply tend to become frustrated. It just simply wouldn't work. Is there, and I, I think you said this, it, it's more of an adult relationship than a 
needs-based relationship. My question would have been, is there room for relationships within an asocial contract? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, it, uh, it's somewhat difficult to describe because let's say you've got a room full of individuals, let's say a room full of like 10, nine or 10 individuals, and they're all, they've all agreed to begin accessing a particular source um, like an archetype, let's say the power of the feminine, let's say. And since each of the nine or 10 individuals were all raised in different parts of the country, different ancestries, different traumas, different histories, basically, the experience of the feminine and the expression of the feminine is all going to come out differently for each individual. But we're all sourcing the feminine. So there's a sense of group unity we're all sourcing the same archetype but it's all coming out differently idiosyncratically with each individual and then there's a point where interaction becomes it results how can i put this here um because there's certain things that have to occur before a social interaction actually happens and one of them is that the internal commitment to the source that you're serving in this case like the power of the feminine has to reach a very high level within each individual in the group. And when it reaches that high level, then in a sense, each individual is surrendered to and is being subject to the power of the feminine, which is in a sense, shaping and moving and animating their expression, their gesture, uh, their way of moving across the floor, meaning that they're now in a sense, activated by the feminine as it's moving through them. And each individual, as I said, is showing a different expression of this. So as the commitment, the self-commitment to the feminine increases, there is a kind of blossoming of presence that naturally reaches out to others where the interaction at that point becomes a process of mutual offering of presence and this is what makes it very different from any social or theatrical, for that matter, uh, level of interaction. Social and theatrical interaction between individuals usually depends on people wanting things from each other. Objectives are fulfilled. You know, on the stage, even different characters are brought to life in any stage play by wanting something from the other characters. A series of objectives. What do, what do I want from this person? What do I want from this person? In the asocial climate in the process of asocial interplay nobody wants anything from anybody else it's completely liberated from uh that social uh convention through the spirit of mutual offering and these offerings act on each other meaning you know there's someone coming at me offering their presence and that acts on me that it influences me and so I have a response to being influenced by your emanation or by your offering. And so there's this interaction of people acting on each other, but not wanting anything from each other. And it's spontaneous. And that's also a big difference between asocial and social interaction. Oftentimes, social interactions are very steeped in habit. Uh, very rarely are they actually spontaneous. And so we're experimenting with them. Um, spontaneous interaction here so that brings up the idea of of just being tuned in to the current the present moment yes but specifically is how to sustain your commitment to the source you're serving 
right. while interacting across the board. So there's a kind of double vision occurring, a double vision between the commitment to your, what I'll call your verticality, meaning the source that is within you, maybe it's above you or within or below you, but it's more vertical in nature. And then the horizontal dimension involves other people and how to interact with others from a higher level of vertical integrity so that you don't lose touch with the source you're serving while interacting with others. And that's also rare in social interactions. They don't really get that so much. Right, right. So the, the asocial interaction there in a nutshell of, of interacting without need. You've said it. I don't know that I could summarize it well enough. It's based on not wanting things from each other, but rather from a point of mutual offering. Mm-hmm. When, and, and it's really um, an offering of the self. In fact, one of the aims of paratheater is basically to, to learn and to come into some kind of direct experience of the total offering of the self. And of course, you know, to even be in the place of participating and committing to a total offering of the self, you have to have a really strong sense of self to start with. That part is empowered. Uh, The sense of self is empowered through the particular archetype or the source that, um, you know, you might be working with at the time. And in the paratheater process, we work with multiple sources, many different sources. I just pick, you know, the source of the feminine out of the hat just then. You know, there's the masculine and there's the four elements. You know, there's the trinity of the destroyer, creator, nourisher. Typically, we, we don't, the sources we draw upon are not from the social personality. They're from more um, universal or more archetypal uh, but, dimensions. Right, but there seems to be a, a notion that you have to find yourself before you can lose yourself. Is that? Yeah, not, not really. I mean, that's a that's a, a kind of a, a easy, more kind of flippant way of talking about it. It's because how can I put this? You know, part of what makes it even possible to begin accessing these impersonal forces of the feminine or the masculine or the four elements is a precursor process, something that has to come before that. And that is um, a rather profound receptivity uh, that we achieve through um, a method we call no form. It's a standing zazen meditation. And this is also another reason why this work is not for everybody. Not, Not everybody is is up for the challenge or even the capacity to relax the thinking machine and enter into an intimacy with void to come into a profound state of internal receptivity where nothing is happening and it's not a problem. And from this place of receptivity, you can begin sourcing these energies. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. And then, you know, what happens is that after we source them, see, sourcing the energies from this kind of deep internal receptivity, we kind of get shot up with the energy. We become very inflated, so to speak. We become very full of the energy. Uh, it's a very high octane energy state. And this is why after each engagement with these energies, we return to the no-form stance, to the Zazen standing position, to discharge, to... Um, return to being nothing, to release our attachment to the identification that we had with the big energy 
to let it go, to let go of our attachment to whatever was happening. And that becomes part of the ongoing discipline. So we use the no form to induce the trance that engages, that, that, that comes from engaging, you know, these big energies. But then we return to no form to break the trance of those energies. So we return basically to being nobody but ourselves. And use no form to initiate trance. You use the word receptivity. When you're discharging the energies, would do you still approach it as receptivity or is there a different approach? Well, honestly, the approach is going to differ for each uh, individual. The, the, the more charged uh, an archetype is, meaning some archetypes have a greater emotional charge for, for each of us. Some are more charged than others. But anyway, um, uh, the greater the charge of an archetype, the deeper the receptivity is necessary to discharge. And this is why, again, it's really a discipline. It's a, a kind of uh, work process where if, if you don't, if you're not motivated to continue returning to void space, continue returning to this intimacy with void, even you know to the point of discovering how no, this what we call void or the fertile void or the state of potential, discovering how that actually might be the ground of our being. Mm-hmm. And so it is, in a sense, returning to the ground of our being after every ritual so that, you know, we're not leaving the room shot up with ourselves, thinking we're some god form or goddess or whatever. Right. Might be dangerous for, for well, dinner. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it wouldn't... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's 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 also it's basically a device to curb and minimize ego inflation, which can occur during this process. Any kind of um, transformative ritual process runs its own kind of dangers, and a lot of people involved in the occult rituals and ritual ceremonial magic and so forth have come across this. It's very common, you know. A lot of ceremonial magicians also just happen to be dicks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because they haven't figured out that, you know, all that big energy work is an ego inflation uh, event. And if they don't have, you know, a counterbalance to, um, you know, restore humility, they go around thinking that they're um, something that they're not. Right. So we discharge the energy through no form. Does that end the ritual? That ends that ritual that, that we're ritual. in yeah because there's a each paratheater session runs about three hours and in that three hours there can be anywhere from three to five maybe six rituals so that there's a series of events that occur that require um constant return to no form over and over again it becomes its own kind of um meditation practice that's uh, uh dynamic meditation we're not sitting down meditating mm, but a way to return to center maybe a return to being nothing. And being, there you go. Yeah. For some, that's going to ex- be experienced, returning the center. Uh, other, for others, that may be a, a return to just ex- return to the experience of, I don't know who the fuck I am. <laughs> Fair enough. And from there, is there a, a, a final closing ritual for a given three-hour session? Um, it's usually a cool-down ritual. Um, it's usually a ritual that is specifically designed to start cooling the jets because part of the effect of this work is to activate the central nervous system, which in a sense uh, triggers an internal subjective experience of um, the energy body of becoming, in a sense, 
temporarily identified as a being of light, the light mm. body, the energetic body becomes lit up. And so this the central nervous system, both uh, spe- specifically the um, you know the sympathetic nervous system becomes hyperstimulated. And so the no form process is very helpful and useful for um, kind of cooling off the jets, jets and uh, dissipating the charge. And some people are not able to do that. They haven't, you know, gotten deep enough into their no form practice. So they, you know, they leave the session still completely lit up and they can't sleep. You know, they're up three or four in the morning. And for those individuals, I recommend soaking in an Epsom salt bath, uh, mm. a cup one cup per 100 pounds of body weight, and just soaking for about 15 minutes max, taking a shower and then going to rest in a dark room. And that, that's that been known, the salts have been known to um, neutralize excess electromagnetism in the body. Gotcha. And from there, it seems like this is powerful work and there needs to be, uh, is there integration afterwards? Is there any sort of structure to that? How do you make sense of what happened oh man well that's you know that's a huge <laughs> huge question um it, it's one of the more challenging parts of the work uh is how do i apply it to my daily life and how does it fit into the life i'm living so i'm just not going to ritual as a kind of baptist church on sunday event and then i forget everything the next day so i can only speak for myself I've been very keen on integrating several components of the work over the years, only because I really haven't had the, any other choice. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years, and so it's in my blood, it's in my bones, it's in my cells. And so, you know, the whole notion of my verticality, um, I can conjure up in a split second. Um, I can drop into no form just in a matter of moments. I can, you know, so it's not like I have to try, but it's always there. And that's simply a virtue of me having done the work for so long. For other individuals who've only done it a year or two or even five years, it it is more challenging how to find, you know, ways. And, you know, I, I try, I tell them, you know, look, if you're standing in line somewhere, it's a really great time just to drop into no form, just to stand there. Nobody's going to know that you're experiencing intimacy with void, and you know, and you know, when you're standing in line at the grocery store, and then you know, you can move on from there. So, no form is a tool for continually working with this experience. Would you say? Or? Well, it's in a sense, it's almost like how can I put this? One of my one of the long term effects of my own life of having been subject to the no form experience over and over again. It has cultivated in me a kind of cultural immunity. And I mean immunity to the toxic culture at large, not all culture. And so it has become very valuable to me to um, to live my life uh, amidst uh, what I would perceive as a, a deeply toxic culture at large. I won't even go into the nature of that because it's just, I think it's evident to a lot of people if you just pay attention that there's a lot of poison out there. It doesn't affect me. It kind of rolls off my back. I don't have that. I, I just don't care about it. I don't have the empathy for that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not identified with that. And part of that, I think, has to do with just a certain comfortable, a certain comfort in not having to identify with anything. Sort of like what you mentioned at the beginning of, of this interview of living without a self-image. It's sort of like that. So by cultivating that, you're able to navigate 
the toxicity of the world without it really getting its hooks in you. Yeah, that's the way it's felt uh, so far. And I I only know that because, you know, I'm, I, I watch the news like anybody else. And sometimes I watch the news with my wife and I see that she's like, freaking out about all the things the news are spewing forth and i'm not freaking out I'm going, what's, yeah. what's happening and i would you know we have a discussion about it and then because she's done paratheater too but not as long as i am but i remind her well you know if you can find some place within you that's um you know somehow relevant to your own uh, internal legitimacy to your own verticality Perhaps you can, you know, watch the news with a little more perspective and not have to think that it's all the truth. You know, there's all kinds of um, agendas um, that, you know, mainstream media is attached to, that there's biases and so forth. I, yes, absolutely. So if we were able to summarize this paratheatrical experience, I'm looking at my notes here and I'm seeing words like uh, learning spiritual authority through direct experience or soul making through feeling the body deeply. Does that begin to capture? I'm hearing a lot about no form and how that's a big part of this and a tool to just. No, I think you're on it. I mean, those are um, pretty good, actually. Um, one of the more difficult things that I've had to learn to do is talk about this work because the very nature of the work is nonverbal. Uh, it's, it's a nonverbal somatic discipline. Uh, sometimes words will come into play, um, but for the most part, it's, it, it remains nonverbal. And so there's these profound intuitive, in-depth intuitive experiences, experiences of, of uh, profound emotion, sensation, psychic impressions, mythopoetic sensibilities are aroused. Uh, there's rituals involving, let's say, ex extracting movements that re are recalled from our dreams and putting those movements together in a choreography that we actually execute as a ritual choreography. The results of almost all of these rituals um, can be a bit shocking, can be a bit stunning to the um, you know, the intellectual thinking machine. And this is also why, again, this work is not for everybody because uh, everyone is responsible for their own peace of mind, their own sanity. And so you have to really find your own language and your own symbology and your own way of talking, thinking, and writing about this work if that's what you're going to do. Otherwise, you know, you're left speechless. In the sense that it's not for everybody, it seems like, if anything, we might be able to extract no form as a tool that's more accessible to the folks at large. Well, it's funny uh, that you say no form being the most accessible. I would say that would be the <laughs> most inaccessible. To come into um, an authentic intimacy with void space, I think is a rare capacity. Uh, it ca I think ca it can be learned. Uh, some individuals uh, have a certain knack or talent. They just have a certain innate ability there and they don't even know they have it until you know it's labeled and named as such but i think you know for the general populace it's almost out of reach is is my guess if there is anything that maybe might be most accessible is the notion of meeting the body's central need of being felt deeply mm. and you know you can do this through exercise you can do this 
through great sex. You can do this through just simply walking a lot. But some point where you're sweating is really the only time when your body's being felt deeply is when there's sweat produced. Otherwise, it's not, I don't think it really goes all the ways. You have to reach the sweat point. I mean, you've, you know what I'm talking about because you've- I felt done, it. Yeah, you felt it. You've uh, done long, long distance bike riding, right? Yeah. So you, you know what that's about. You know where it brings you. You feel your body deeply enough and it releases visions. It releases states of consciousness that were simply not accessible before the ride. Yes. And I felt being above treeline at high altitudes just- Oh, yeah. That, that combination is- uh, Sometimes it can be dangerous. Yeah, dizzying. Yeah. Mm. And so, just right all through breaking a sweat, feeling the body deeply. Mm-hmm. See, that would be the first part. And if there's another part in um, the book, State of Emergence, you know, it's on Amazon. You can get it to the publisher at Falcon Press, would be um, an experiment with two different types of attention, of paying attention. Um, what I refer mm. to in the book as first and second attentions. And briefly, first attention refers to the uh, that awareness link to the thinking machine. You know, it's that awareness where we're automatically labeling things that we perceive. We see something, we label it a table or a chair or a door, we label it. And then there's also the same thinking machine that assigns meaning to things. Oh, this means that, this means that. So this is these are properties of the first attention. It's pretty much the predominant attention of the culture at large, the first attention. It's not the only attention, though. There's something also called the second attention. And the second attention would be that awareness linked to presence, energy, phenomena, without labels, without assigning labels or meaning. So how do you, it it really represents the uh, kind of interaction of seeing without thinking. So the thinking machine, the perceiving apparatus. So thinking is not the same as perception. And so these are two different ways of paying attention. One where you're assigning labels and meaning to everything, and one where you're relaxing that and simply seeing and being with the mystery of what you're witnessing. Would you call that direct experience? That comes very close to direct experience, yeah. And of course, both attentions are important and significant for you know our survival. But if you don't have an escape from first attention, if you can't somehow get away from it, uh, it can lead to all kinds of psychological problems like uh, claustrophobia, anxiety, violence, um, where you feel like you're trapped in your body and you can't, you know, so there's all kinds of complications that come from that if you can't find escape. This is a lot of, a lot of reasons why people get drunk, you know, they, you know, or they take drugs is they, it gives a temporary escape from the first attention. Mm. Would you say the second attention is the gateway to no form? It can be. I don't know if it is the okay. gateway. Um, it can be a gateway for some, but you see, the uh, the second attention is a function of attention, uh. and no form to me is an expression of being. So, to the extent that you're still paying an attention, that's a form. It's also, you know, you're working with observer observed. 
Uh, and no form expresses uh, a non-dualistic experience. Gotcha. That helps me understand the depth of what we mean by no form, what you mean by no form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's deep shit. <laughs> you introduced some concepts in your book that I think could be useful to folks that may not want to dig into paratheater, but still could get a lot out of your book. One is the something about the poor baby. The victim complex is what I, I interpret that to mean. And uh, it seems like shadow work. Is that power loss through the poor baby projection? Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. Um, you know, poor baby is, is a term to refer to um, one of many ways in which people participate in power loss in their lives and, um, you know, diminish them, uh, their own sense of place in the universe and where they become more easily controlled and victimized by external agencies, uh, whether that be the, you know, the media or government or teachers or whatever. And how do we escape that? <laughs> I don't know about we. Um, <laughs> that's, that's also, also uh, it's this kind of a, the universal we has been thrown around a lot these days. I think, you know, it, it's an individual process. And I say that because each nervous system is going to process the experience of power loss slightly differently. And, you know, I think if you can stop the pity party, you know, if you can uh, get your attention off yourself, you can practice getting your attention off of yourself, basically, and put it on something else. You know, it can be a, something as simple as making yourself useful, uh, washing the dishes, doing the laundry, or maybe, you know, helping somebody else that that has a problem bigger than yours or any way in which you can get your attention off yourself is going to help mm. um, break down the poor baby. Gotcha. Something about self-acceptance. Is that? Yeah. And, but, you know, sometimes the thing is, is that if you're, if you're deep in poor baby, the whole notion of self-acceptance, I think, is a little bit too much. To, concept. Too, yeah, too much to expect from you. Um, right. it, you're setting the bar a little high there. I think it's easier to, or simpler, I don't know about easier, it's simpler to just think, well, how do I get my attention off myself? You know, how do I make myself useful, for example? Gotcha. And, you know, I made a mess. I'll, I'll clean up my mess. That could be enough just to um, alleviate uh, the self-pity for a moment. Clean up your mess. Clean up your mess. And another power loss you mentioned or discuss is the courtship compulsion. Is right. that is that <laughs> caused by poor relations with the anima or animas? Um, it, it can be. Yeah, that's a very complex power loss. You know, yeah. And, and this, again, is going to really differ for each individual and their upbringing, you know, uh, the mother and father that raised them, the mother oftentimes is going to be the modeling of the internal anima for the man and the father, the internal animus for the woman. And, you know, not all anima and animus archetypes or modelings are positive. Some of them are like, you, you know, individuals may have been raised by a, a cruel father figure or a um, absent mother or a smothering mother figure. So uh, there's all kinds of variations to this. And this is a very common power loss, I think, for young people, teenagers, and, and also individuals in their 20s still for like about 20 years there. 
where uh, individuals are um, convinced that there's some kind of soulmate out there, the one, the one that's going to change their lives, the the dream lover, uh, the one and only, and so forth. And so they're on the constant lookout, you know, for who that might be. And then when there's someone that sort of looks or appears like that, then that unleashes the obsession and the unleashing of the psychic energies and one's own psyche onto that person. And it pretty much initiates a kind of eventually a kind of romantic catastrophe because uh, there's uh, there's very little to no relating that can actually happen when you have this kind of massive psychic projection uh, occurring. And so it doesn't really take long for things to go south or to go wrong. And how do we find, I'm going to avoid the we, how might, some, how might someone in this predicament find their way out? Well, again, you know, it's, it differs for each individual. How do you find your way out of a nonstop catastrophic romance? Yeah, it depends, you know, if they've gone poor baby on it. You know, sometimes there's a lot of self-pity that can come along with the experience of losing your soul <laughs> in the projection and the anima or animus. It can feel as if, it can feel like an experience of soul loss, like you've lost your soul. Well, you've projected it onto that other person and they've, in a sense, embodied that. And so there can be a feeling of extreme alienation, rejection, annihilation, a whole kind of onslaught of negative emotions can come around. And it can even provoke violence. A lot of the violence and like domestic violence, I -hmm. think is, um, you know, caught up in unprocessed anima and animus projections where there's no relating anymore. I mean, the word animosity comes from anima and animus. And animosity is a form of hatred and contempt. No, I would agree. If you look at those things through the Jungian anima, animus lens, I I think you're onto something. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, how do you get out of that? I think probably the most direct way, and this might apply to this word we, is to suffer through it. Mm. Is to just go through the center of it, go through the heartbreak, because that's what it's about. It's it's Uh, about unmet expectations. Um, it's about disappointment. Uh, it's about people not living up to your big ideals for them. And yes. that's, an, that's a very important heartbreak to, uh, to experience. And so I would say just go right through the heartbreak. And if you're an artist, sing your sad song, uh, create your heartbreaking mm. poetry, break the hearts of other people through your art. Mm, powerful words going right into the depths of the pain. Yeah, and through the other side, if you can. I mean, that's that takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of heart, actually, to um, you know pass through the heart of any human condition um, and go right through the other side. Mm. Uh, outcome unpredictable, outcome unknown. Right, it ties in with our whole thing about Chapel Perilous and facing your deepest fears and um, going through. One of the things I wanted to mention about Chapel Perilous. Um, once a year, I run uh, an eight-week online interactive course for individuals who are um, studying Timothy Leary's eight-circuit brain system, of which I'm very uh, adverse in. I might say, might even say I'm an expert at it. That's and right. in the course, there's a whole section where we enter into uh, Chapel Perilous experience, how to recognize it, how to identify it, finding ways to go into mm-hmm. it, how to escape it. 
so it, it becomes its own kind of practice, uh, the entering and escaping of Chapel Perilous. There's a number of ways to go about that. And so we cover that in the course. And I mention this because the course is actually, the next session is coming up in um, March. And in, gen, uh, in fact, uh, the enrollment just recently opened up, just like I think yesterday or the day before. And it fills up pretty quickly. And if any of this sounds interesting to your listeners, you know, verticalpool.com is the website that has all, all the work that I do. How would you, we've been talking about paratheater in regards to Chapel Perilous. How might you summarize the Eighth Circuit model on Chapel Perilous? That's good. My ideas have gone through uh, some changes since I first said that in my first book, Angel Tech, which I wrote in 1985. And I wrote it back then. I saw Chapel Perilous as an interval between the Fourth and the Fifth Circuits. And that worked for me for a while until I got older, until I had more experience. And then I had to recalibrate and rethink the whole relationship of Chapel Perilous to the Eight Circuits, which um, I did in my 2009 book called The Eight Circuit Brain. So now I look at Chapel Perilous as a kind of non-local strata of experience that hovers over all eight circuits or somehow around all eight circuits. It's a place where the um, unintegrated parts of our personality reside. Mm. Um, meaning it's very rare that you find an individual who's fully realized, who's fully integrated all of their complexes or they've transformed and healed the traumas. It's very rare that you find such, such an individual. Most of us are almost completely unintegrated. I mean, it's it's really an extreme situation that we find ourselves in in the current, you know, digital era, you know, with internet addiction and so forth. And we become digitized versions of ourselves. And we just lose track of the, um, uh, the faculty of imagination because we're absorbing so many images from other people. We're finding a difficult time in creating images we can call our own and so forth and so on. And so a lot gets remains unintegrated. And so to me, Chapa Perilous these days uh, refers to that kind of non-local strata, this kind of dimension that is beyond time and space. It's non-local. And it holds, it's almost like the cloud you know, like, you know, the Apple cloud, it holds data, it holds the unintegrated aspects mm. of your personality, until you're ready to pull them down out of the cloud, and into your body and live them out. I love that. I That's a great metaphor. It really works for me seeing it that way about this unintegrated material being non-local, but somehow within the cloud of our being, perhaps defined using these eight circuits. And so we begin to integrate that material by working with the eight circuit model. Well, we, we would work with ourselves using the eight circuits as a kind of diagnostic. The eight circuit brain model, I think, makes a great diagnostic. I don't think it makes a really good treatment plan. So when you, when you say diagnostic, then, you know, hey, I need to look at this area of my life and therefore I should consider X, Y, and Z. But... Well, the considering of X, Y, Z is not part of the eight circuit model so much. That's the user's reaction to the model. Gotcha. 
Diagnostics, there's a number of different diagnostics. Diagnostics are basically uh, any system that helps you um, identify and track various patterns of whatever the diagnostic is uh, being applied to. And so here, the diagnostic is being applied to the person as a way to um, identify and track eight different frequencies or levels of intelligence, eight different states of consciousness, if you will. And it can help um, determine where you're lacking consciousness and where your consciousness is stronger and where it's weak. And so then from there, you know, if you have a response of, well, I'd like to become more conscious in this area, maybe a little less conscious in this area, then you have, you know, that process of your own work. Well, what are you going to do to become more conscious in that area? The eight circuit brain won't do that for you. Uh, yeah. The eight circuit brain is just a, it's an empty diagnostic tool. Uh, I think it's a great tool to track these um, patterns, but the rest of it's pretty much going to be up to the user. I understand a framework for for assessing. Yes, that's a really great way of putting it. Is there anything more you want to say about the eight circuit model while we're on this subject? There's a lot we could go into there, but um, yeah, no, not really. I mean, this has been an interesting conversation, weaving in and out of Chapel Perilous, uh, the ritual work of Paratheater, and you know, coming back around to Chapel Perilous um, and a bit with the eight circuits. The only thing, I, you know, I mean, you yourself, you're, you've been working with the eight circuits for, what, almost 15 years, in, in a sense. Um, probably uh, almost 25. Wow. So you're developing your own relationship to it. And I know you're probably going to be coming out with some more writing and maybe a book. Uh, I'm really curious what, what angle you're going to be taking you know, in, in uh, presenting the circuits, uh, you know, through your own experience and vision. Right. Well, I, I've written two things already, and I think, in a in a sense, I've said what I needed to say. It's more a matter of developing it further. But I think there's a, a developmental perspective on the lower four circuits that ties in with modern developmental psychology that needs to be re-expressed a little more clearly, which goes all the way back to Freud. Really, you can you can map the first four circuits right to Freud, but it also we've we've evolved those theories beyond Freud. And I think that can be more well-developed as well as uh, tying it in with young and development of consciousness. And that leads to all the modern neuroscience that supports a lot of these development theories. And that's all neat and people seem to really like that. But I think to the extent that you have, uh, you said you're an expert in the Eighth Circuit model, I would agree with that. But I'd say you've continued to develop it. You've brought embodiment to the model. You've brought this notion, I think Leary hinted at a connection between upper and lower circuits, but he never really developed that idea and you've really taken it and run with it. But to the extent that you've brought embodiment to the model, I would like to really bring relationship to the model. When we talk about relationships and the eight circuits, a lot of times folks will try to pigeonhole it to the second circuit or maybe the fourth circuit social. And I think the whole thing, I look at it as from a relational perspective. And, and so that's, I think, the overall theme I'd like to continue to develop and express. I think that's wonderful. I have in my own private or personal uh, experience with the circuit, something I don't teach uh, so much because it's 
too valuable. <laughs> mm. uh, would you say that's it is sacred in that sense? Well, sacred to me in that it ties into my um, artistic and creative processes, which uh, though I don't apply the uh, my, 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 those processes for me are highly intuitive and instinctive even. And so I don't really bring in intellectual explanations around, you know, this is how I create, this is how, you know, how the creative process works or how art works. I just don't go there. I don't school people on creativity. However, the relational aspect that you mentioned is is quite close to me because, for example, in the Circuit 7 uh, experience in my life, I have an open relation to what I call the muses archetype. Uh, the Muses archetype is an autonomous agency um, that comes and goes. It has its own agendas and its own kind of conditions to appear or disappear, meaning I have to live a certain way of life. I have to adjust my thinking in a particular way in order for the Muses to stay around, <laughs> almost in a sense of how I do my best so that I can remain appealing to the Muses. I'll put it that way. It's a kind of a courtship. And I know the things that turn the muses right off because I've gone through episodes where they're just completely disappeared. They're gone. Like, what happened? What did I do? I fucked up. You know, it's like in any relationship, you fuck up and the lover leaves you. (laughs) So, you know, I figured out, okay, what are the things, what are the adjustments and the other kinds of ways of of living? And I, I, I don't teach that. I don't share that. That's just, you know, from my own self. But it's completely relational. And this is why I relate to what you're saying about it. I, th- I think you're on to a good direction. It's a really healthy direction. And I find relational also in all the eight circuits, different points of relational dynamics. Uh, and they, it's almost as if through each of the eight circuits, the whole notion of relationship differs. Um, they each have their own uh, definitions or ways of even knowing and experience what relationship is. Yes, that's... That's what I'm gunning for. Yeah, good for you. Stick with that. There's, you're onto something. It's a very rich territory. Yes, yes, and I think it's pretty key for a lot of things we face today. You mentioned the muses, and it's been a while, but you spoke of the anima as granting access to the muses at one point. And I noticed in your note in your current book, there's no anima shrine, and uh, but there's a muse ritual that's in conjunction with a what looked like a holy trinity of personal values. The anima archetype is something I've been in, intimately involved with uh, unconsciously at first in my 20s and 30s when I was projecting it onto women in romantic pursuits and so forth. And then later on in my 40s, I um, mistakenly assumed that the anima was also the muse. It was the same archetype. And I realized fairly soon that uh, they were different archetypes um, entirely. Even though I've been inspired by my experience was with the anima, uh, it's of a very different ilk than the muse's archetype. But what I've discovered with, and this is personal to me, I don't know if it's true for everyone else or any other artist, but in my own interactions with the anima, she seems to be somewhat of a messenger between my conscious ego and the muses sometimes. Not always, but sometimes she will serve as a kind of a go-between. 
And she knows she's not the muse now, finally. <laughs> and so she doesn't give me as much flack, you know, because I was I was just mistreating her before identifying herself as something other than herself. And now I know who she is. Uh, you she's understand not the, her better. Yeah, she's not the muse. And so the, she's, served, she's serving a more functional role in my life as a kind of a go-between, a relay, kind of a relay between the muses and myself. Because sometimes the muses as an archetype, it's a little bit like uh, white light energy. It's just too bright. It's too pure. And so through the, uh, the anima is not pure. She's very dirty. She's, uh, you know, full of, you know, mud and sticks and hair and, you know, She's got the sin of the universe in her, and and she's in love with herself. Um, <laughs> yeah, the white light goes through her, and it's and I, I it's more palpable. I can deal with it, you know, as it becomes more humanized, you know, and that way also I avoid burnout because you know direct too much direct contact with certain archetypal energies can result in a certain kind of uh, psychological burnout. I, I, I've discovered experience and have learned as far as the muse and this holy trinity of my interpretation was holy trinity of values personal values what's the relationship there the only trinity that i've included in the muse ritual structure is the trinity of gut heart and head and the reason being is, is that um between those three centers in the body, the ritual that we go through before the muses ritual the kind of prep ritual of the head, heart, and gut, what that does is it opens up the body as a totality so that, you know, there's a, we inhabit the head center, we inhabit the heart center, we inhabit the gut center so that we approach the muse more with our totality, not just with our head, not just with our heart or gut or any combination, but with all three intact. And I have found that in doing so, that the instrument of self, once it's fortified by the activation of the three internal centers, can better absorb the signals of the archetype of the muses and can better um, absorb them and remain intact, uh, meaning not get blown away by it, not get you know, disrupted and disturbed or thrown off center too much about it. Uh, the muses, um, you know, they're a badass archetype. You know, they don't mess around. You know, they um, can cause damage. Gotcha. So there's using the head, heart, gut as a way to, I want to say ground, but I don't know if that's the right word, but help manage the experience. Yeah, grounding um, and a sense of building uh, more uh, sustenance and substance of presence uh, so that you have something to offer, you have something to interact with with the muses. You're just com- you're not just coming in naked, saying, "Give me the inspiration." Um, I did that at first in the very early stages. I said, "I don't need to prepare. I'll just walk naked into the muses' circle." <laughs> I just got mm. knocked right down to the floor, <laughs> just like face plant. Right. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And I just crawled back to no form at that point, you know. (laughs) Well, maybe one last question here on dreaming or one last topic to explore, perhaps. There's a dreaming ritual in the book using dreams to access the imagination. What comes up for me when I think of a global chapel perilous is Joseph Campbell saying that we need a new myth. 
I just wonder if, if, if the collective could dream a new myth into consciousness. Maybe that's a little too abstract. Well, when you're locked into the universal we and thinking of how are we as a collective going to be doing this or that, you're basically you're going to remain, you're going to keep talking about it. Nothing's going to right. really happen. And I think the action begins at the individual level and then branches out to other individuals and then perhaps clustering into communities and so forth. Otherwise, uh, you're, you're, you're uh, what's the word, wrestling with generalizations. It doesn't, right. get speci- it doesn't get specific. And it's in the specificity that I think that uh, true change occurs. Hmm. I wonder if that's a good point to leave this. Antro, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Certainly, I would say you are an expert in the Eighth Circuit brain. I recommend your books. I've taken your course several times, and I think it's well worthwhile for anyone interested in applying the model. True. And uh, with that, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. It's been uh, my pleasure. Mine as well. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Antro Ali for taking the time to talk with us. You can find Antro on Facebook and at verticalpool.com. Several other links you'll find in the show notes. Thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Ross of Hilaritas Press. And thank you to producer Ryan Reeves for putting it all together. Our next episode, releasing on the 23rd of June, will feature Jesse Walker. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas. Mm-hmm.